Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to A Minor Detail Radio. Hey, you're here with me on Sunday night. It's 9 o'clock, and we're live. My name is Ryan Miner, and I always appreciate those who tune in. We had <laughs> interesting last two weeks. We've had excellent guests. Uh, we had uh, Bob Ehrlich on two weeks ago. Then we had former Attorney General and one-time gubernatorial candidate, Doug Gansler. He was on the show last weekend, and Man, I want to thank the listeners. Um, I've had uh, a lot of hits, a lot of hits on these. Uh, I sound like Trump, gosh. No, but I did. I had quite a few people who listened in, and um, I'm very gracious and humbled by that. Um, thanks for listening. You know, please always email me suggestions, um, how I can get better, how I can bring more content to the audience. Um Email is ryan at aminordetail.com. This week, I have a pre-recorded interview that I did from earlier today with uh, Maryland Democratic candidate. Uh, he's running for governor. Uh, his name's Alec Ross, and Alec was on the show previously. Alec is a tech entrepreneur. He was a former teacher in Baltimore City Schools. Uh, I think he taught sixth grade at Booker T. Washington Ele- Elementary, or uh, yeah, fifth grade or sixth grade. He's going to he'll probably send me an email and say, Ryan, I come on, you should know this by now. Um, but Alec came on today. He met me at my office in Rockville uh, and he's going to talk about. He's going to talk about education. He's going to talk about a lot. Sorry, I was just processing. It's been a long weekend. We went sailing yesterday in St. Michael's and it was a spur of the moment thing. We drove down and we had lunch at a place called Limoncello's in St. Michael's. And then we went up to the inn at Perry Cabin and we were just sitting there and I was about to smoke a cigar. And Captain Jason, who we know pretty well, who is the uh, the the captain of the, uh, the inn at Perry Cabin, their uh, sailboats and other boats. And he walked up to Kim and I and he said, hey, do you guys want to go? for a boat ride or you want to go sailing we yeah sure so kim and i went with two other couples and we had a blast we went out on the miles river and if you haven't ever had a chance to do that go out and do it go see the anna perry cabin Uh, i don't get any money from the anna perry cabin to say this but uh maybe they'll we'll we'll strike a deal there so without further ado alec ross running for governor of maryland we did a live interview, and here it is. I have with me gubernatorial candidate Alec Roth. He's a Democrat running for governor in the state of Maryland. And, Alec, you've been busy. Um, you've been in Ocean City this past weekend, I presume. Salisbury and, <laughs> Salisbury and Ocean City. And you've you probably talked to a lot of these educators. And so today I want to focus on three things. One is... Um, your plan that you released this past week, or last week rather, on voting reform. Um, And then I want to talk to you about education and your education plan. And then um, we'll talk some, I don't know, some all-skate issues in Maryland. It'll be brief, but um, I'm mostly interested in your perception on how we're not standing up strong enough to Trump. And I think that that's a real argument to be made um, around the state that while we're in Montgomery County, we are we have lots of leadership that is standing up to Donald Trump, but if he we continue on the same path that we're on, um, we need a strong leader at the top in the state legislature to say enough is enough, and, and basically what that means for our state. So, um, but I want to go right into your education platform. Um, www.alecross.com slash education. Yes. We do not do tweet size public policy on, on the Alec Ross for Maryland campaign. No, you don't. If you want to read a really geeky 10-page white paper, alecross.com slash education. Well, we have that in front of us. You are the only candidate, I believe, in this race who is a former teacher, right? I am. Okay. Yes. Married. I was a sixth grade teacher at Booker T. Washington Middle School in West Baltimore fell in love with and married the teacher across the hall. I was teaching social studies and language arts. She was teaching math, and we've. she continues to be an educator in Baltimore's public schools, and we have three kids in Baltimore's public schools. So they do attend public schools. They do. So unlike your, some of your opponents whose children don't go to public schools and want to talk about funding our public schools, 
your kids actually do go to public schools. We have we have actual skin in the game. Well, yes. that's important. I mean, and and I think that you can speak at a level that other candidates wouldn't necessarily be able to speak to because you understand you were a former teacher yourself. You understand what it takes, the amount of hours that you put in. And at one point in my career, I was going to become a teacher. I went to I went my first year of college. Um, was an exploratory time in my life. And I said, I want to be a music teacher because I love music. I, I was instrumental and um, I had a hobby and a passion. Um, but I then decided, well, maybe I want to change the world. And so I became a political science major. I often think, man, I really should have become a teacher. <laughs> so you um, you spent some time this weekend in Ocean City. Great weather, by the way. It was Spectacular. Felt terrible to be there in a tie. It's the first time I've ever been in Ocean oh. City in a tie. Really? Yes. Where were you guys at? Where was the convention held? It was at the convention center. Oh, the big convention. The center. big convention center down on Forty First Street. Right. Um, in my tie. And your tie. In a tie in Ocean City. It just seems wrong. For 19 consecutive years, my wife and I have had our summer vacations in Ocean City. And let me tell you, if there's one shirt with a collar that shows up, there's only one. <laughs> Uh, I have spent many, uh, I've spent my senior week in Ocean City, but we're not going to talk about that today. Um, so MSEA is one of the largest, um, well, I think it's the largest um, teacher-backed organization that supports um, our state's teachers. I think there's 73,000 members. There's 2,000 volunteers during the 2014 campaign when they supported Anthony Brown. The endorsements come in April. As the former teacher in this race, and you're selling yourself as that, um, and you've talked at length at the two forums that you've been in when you go around the state, um, what's the feedback from the MSEA for, on your campaign, and what are you hearing from some of the teachers in the state of Maryland? It's very positive. I, you know, I think I've been very warmly received by the M MSEA, uh, its leadership and its membership. I think that we want something similar, which is more professionalization of the role of educators in the state of Maryland. I think that uh, it's too, educators are too often viewed as glorified volunteers. People sort of snicker and say, oh, you get your, you get your summers off. Um, but it's really it's, it's disappointing. It's one of the few professions where if you want to be able to stay in the classroom, if that's what you're good at, is shaping the minds and the educations of young people, there are very limited opportunities um, economically. There are very limited opportunities for recognition. And so what I want to do, what I would love to do as governor, is I would like to further professionalize the teaching profession uh, in Maryland. And it's not just teachers, too. One of the things that I've noticed is the, we, we're losing counselors in our schools. So guidance counselors. Guidance counselors. Okay. When, when I was in high school, you know, the counselors played this indispensable role, helping young people navigate their way through future, you know, future choices in education or outside of education. Now, when you see guidance counselors, you know, one guidance counselor for every 250 students, all you're doing is crisis management. And so I think that there's some really negative consequence to that. So in addition to further professionalizing the teaching profession, when I think about educators, and I include guidance counselors among those, is I really think we need to recommit to the role of guidance counselors in our schools because I do think that they play an important role. Yeah, I, I remember my guidance counselors, and not only did they, I mean, they give you good advice, about career advice, but sometimes students that have nobody else to talk to and – they can go and talk privately with their guidance counselor about an issue that affects them. And when, it, and when a guidance counselor has 250 of those students, unless that child is in incredible distress, unless there is some kind of trauma, then the guidance counselor is only going to give that student three minutes. And when you ask, all right, Alec, wait a second, isn't this guy running for governor? Well, how this ties to the role of the governor is we have a once every 15-year opportunity with the Kerwin Commission to reset how we fund education and to reset education policy at the state level. You attended that event, right? I mean, recently. You were there and you were talking. That's my understanding, correct? Uh, I've, I have attended Kerwin Commission events. I haven't attended them all. Okay. Yeah. No, so it's, we have a once every 15-year opportunity 
And I think this is a bit, let me be honest, I think this is more important than who the governor is for any given four years. Mm-hmm. I think that how a decision about how you fund education and what education policy is for 15 years, that will touch more than a million Marylanders mm-hmm. uh, going through the education system, all 24 jurisdictions. This is this is a really big deal, and this is a big reason why I'm running for governor. When people say, Alec, you wrote a New York Times bestseller. You could be making money. You could be doing this. You've never run for office before. Why are you running for governor now? It's because it, I don't I don't sort of fetishize the idea of seeing my name on a lawn sign. The reason I'm running is because of this once every 15-year opportunity to reset education policy and funding in the state. That's what's really drawn me in in big part. There's nobody else in the race who has taken on education as strongly as you have, and fairly or unfairly, and other candidates may say differently, but you're the education candidate in this race in the Democratic primary. I mean, you're the only person, and I have it in front of me. I'm looking at a six-point education plan, and when I vote for for candidates and when I look at um, who, who I think would do the best job in the governor's mansion, um, I'm looking for candidates that are detailed, and who else has a kind of plan like this that is you know, you're, you're out and about, you're talking about these points, um, but you can speak from the inside. And we know that in the state of Maryland, we have excellent schools, and we're lucky. Now, you're in Montgomery County where in this district alone um, – well, we're in District 19, but where I live in District 15, we have excellent legislators. Um, but i got to tell you, we, we also have one of the top three best schools in the state. Our children who they are both – one is in elementary school and the other was in middle school. They're going to go to Wooten High School. Yes. Wooten High School is one of the finest schools. We're lucky, and we also pay a lot of money in property taxes. We get what we pay for. We have some of the best teach. I mean, I I, I got to tell you, Alec, we have some of the finest teachers that I've ever experienced in my lifetime. When we go to our kids' schools and we sit and talk, they're communicative. They talk to us. They email us anytime that we need something. We just ask. Our kids are texting their teachers if they have questions about homework. It's the way that's exactly the way it should be. This is it's fabulous. Yeah, and that's and you know, growing up, I wish I had that opportunity. I went to schools. I went to public school in Washington County, and um, you know it was always the teacher was the teacher, and you were the student. There was a big line of separation, but that barrier is being broken. I mean, these people are educators; they're here, they're public servants too, and that's what we have to remember. Teachers are two public servants, and they're being paid as public servants. And there is a real argument to make that why aren't our teachers paid more money? Why are they why aren't they paid more money? No, it's it's fairly remarkable, and what that means is that. When oftentimes when people get to a certain point in their career, one of a couple things happen. So if you go into my backyard on a Sunday evening and we fired up the good old fashioned Weber charcoal grill <laughs> and, you know, folks around with beers in their hands, who are my who are my my wife's friends in the backyard with us uh, getting burgers off the grill? Their teachers, their principals, their assistant principals. This is sort of our social network. And so we've heard firsthand, my, you know, my wife, 23 years after beginning teaching, is still an educator. We, what we have heard, and the data backs this up, is that if you want to remain in the classroom, one of a couple things has to happen. Either A, you have to marry somebody, you have to be married to somebody who makes more money mm-hmm. um, to be able to support the household. B, you go into administration. So you may like teaching sixth graders. But there's more money in being an assistant principal or a principal. And the imperative for a lot of people, once they have kids themselves uh, and they get out of sort of life living in an apartment as a newly wedded couple, you know, expenses come after that um, in later stages of life. And a lot of people are pushed into administration and other people yet are pushed out of education altogether because it is a field where there there isn't much recognition. There isn't much compensation. And so what I want to do, and this is, this is really a problem in the U.S. Um, this is not the problem around much of the rest of the world. It's, it's in the United States where we so devalue the role of the teacher. And what that means is that we don't oftentimes end up with the kind of teachers who we do see at Wooten High School or Whitman High School yeah. or you know any of the, any of the great schools in 
uh, Montgomery County, Howard County, and a handful of others where we do see people make see people making 20 and 30 year commitments uh, to public education. We see people dropping out for other things. Well, this past weekend you were with the um, the activists. I mean, MSEA has a lot of the education activists, and um, and what that what I mean by what, how I characterize activists is that they're they're pushing for more funding in schools. They're making sure that teachers are getting paid a fair wage. Um, and there is an argument, I think, too, on the other side. When I mean the other side, by um, people look at the teachers' association in the state of Maryland as a strong special interest. And sometimes when I know candidates who have run for school board, that there's these great candidates and they don't receive the teachers association endorsement. And that sort of knocks them out of becoming a school board member. Um, do you ever think that um, as a former teacher, I don't know if you were part of the, because Maryland doesn't have unions. Uh, the uh, teachers, they they do locally. So I was a member of the Baltimore Teachers Union. The union. Yes. Okay. Um, did you ever, you know, there's this argument that sometimes people who don't become part of the teachers association or you, that they are, they're not necessarily, I I, I want to say, that they they don't take them as seriously or that. Um, they feel beholden to this organization, um, and if they ever have any counter um, opinions than the organization, that they're quickly drawn back in line. Um, do you ever see that? Do you see that MSEA? I mean, I, I think it's a source for good, but do you see the other side? What they're saying about teachers' unions in general? Um, there is an argument to be made that sometimes teachers' unions stifle the education process. Based on politics, right, and that's a concern of mine, and I think it's legitimate. Yeah. So, in my own experience, you know, I understand the argument, but in my own experience, if what the, the what the teachers unions have to deal with is they're on defense all the time. You know, they are they're busy playing defense. You know, they are trying to defend against um, they are trying to defend against uh, more hours. They're trying to defend against uh, having an increased number of pupils per classroom. They're trying to defend against, you know, losing some standing, some rights in the school. And so what it does is it makes it much more difficult to go off on offense mm -hmm. and say, all right, what are those things that can be done to en enhance the learning and environment? And from my standpoint, what happens is when you're so busy in defense mode, it takes a mind shift to sort of say, all right, how can we open ourselves up to innovation and to Doing some doing some things differently, mm -hmm. and I think that from what I've heard from a lot of teachers is, all right. Well, look, we'll, we will open up to that, but can we please first address the fact that, you know, we've had you know, years of stagnating income, uh, stagnating income here, or you know, we've gone from teaching an average of 27 students to 34 students over the last four years. So it's a lot. It's 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 really a question of mindset, and I think that it is legitimate to ask teachers and ask the unions to say, all right, can you open up and be a part and, uh, of some of the innovation that we're trying to do uh, in the school environment? But I also think, I also understand where they're coming from. It's really, really hard right now uh, in most of the state, not everywhere, but in most of the state right now, being a teacher is tough as your student headcount goes up. I mean, in Baltimore right now, there are classes with, with students in the low 40s in a classroom. And you know what? If you tell a teacher with 43 students in a classroom, hey, we want to talk to you about how we can innovate and increase accountability and this and that, like obviously you're just going to get an angry response because what they're saying is I've got 43 students in a classroom. I've got a single set of textbooks to teach 43 students. They can't take the textbook books hold with them. No. Give me more textbooks. Give me fewer students. That's the mindset. That's what's behind all of this. Last year, the governor stood in Ocean City. And he implemented an executive order. Uh, he effectuated and said, okay, schools are going to start after Labor Day. Now, I had a major problem with that as someone who is a staunch advocate of local control in education. Montgomery County has a major problem with that. And just the other day, the governor uh, was asked about this, specifically related to Montgomery County. And he said about our Board of Education members, I hope that they all lose their jobs. Okay. Wow, that's kind of that's kind of an ad hominem attack. I mean, that's kind of it's personalizing it in a kind of a nasty way. Um, the Baltimore Sun describes Governor Hogan's relationship with MSEA as frosty. Yeah. Um, and 
he was on record as saying a, a phrase, union thugs. Yep. And I remember during the last forum in, at the Germantown campus of Montgomery College, um, you did a little soliloquy and you talked about, you know, this, these are not union thugs. You know, these they're are, teachers. You know, the people who are teaching. You know, I mean, do you eight, think that eight, was the wrong language times. to use? Of course it was, but I think he, ha I think Larry Hogan really dislikes his political opponents. And you know, if you don't play ball with him politically, I think he puts a black hat on you and and characterizes those people as in his, as his enemy rather than seeking to understand the perspective. Um, I'm trying to look. I'm trying to be much more positive in this race. There yeah. are times where I get frustrated and I'll pop off or I'll send a tweet. Uh, that draws blood. But I, I got to tell you, I would love to be able to go through this race trying to set a different tone, in part because when I'm in Maryland, you know, I don't see people on the street wearing either a white hat or a black hat uh, that depends on their political affiliation. <laughs> and when I meet people, I don't ask them their political party so that if you're a Democrat, I like you, and if you're a Republican, I think you're a scumbag. Well, that's how politics work these days, unfortunately. Well, and I'm going to try to push back against Good. that. You know, I, I, I am going to try to push back against campaign that I was most involved in. I ran tech policy for Barack Obama's first presidential campaign. I've heard that somewhere. Right? <laughs> um, we Obama assiduously avoided the ad hominem attacks against John McCain. You know, and he and even when the staff would get nasty uh, in attacks on McCain, he would dial us back. He he, President uh, then Senator Obama would say, "Nope." He'd say, "Senator McCain is a good man. He's a patriot. He served his country, but we have a different vision. We have a different set of priorities and a different set of values on these. But we're not going to we're not going to try to turn John McCain into a scumbag." And vice versa. I remember the moment in the 2008 campaign. And I was in. I was working on Capitol Hill at the time, and I just remember that um, John McCain held a town hall, and a woman said, uh, "He, he Barack Obama is an Arab. He's a Muslim, and we I can't trust him." And he said, "No, ma'am, no, ma'am. He's a good and decent man, and we have disagreements." And he shut her down. Why can't that happen today in our politics? So I'm trying, Ryan. I got to tell you again. I'm not taking. Look, I'm not taking a knife to a gunfight. You know, I'm not some. You know, I'm not a principesa who's going to come <laughs> to this race not ready to compete. Look, I'm in this to win, and I and I've been in big fights with some nasty folks around the world. Um, yeah, literally around the world. Literally around the world in in my work at the State Department. So again, I'm not some little principesa coming at this who isn't prepared to throw a punch. But what I am going to try to do is elevate a little bit, and I'm not going to try to win by eviscerating my opponents. Where there are contrasts, I will draw attention to those contrasts. I think it would be politically irresponsible not to draw attention to the contrasts. But I would like to go back to the kind of, I think, legitimately thoughtful and tough race that I was involved with between Obama and McCain and think of that as a model for what we ought to be able to do in this gubernatorial race. And that at least – it also conforms more with my personality. I mean I would like – I think that there is more that connects us than divides us. Um, I agree, and the last race in 2016 between President Trump and it, – it's grueling to say that um, every time, but nonetheless between him and Secretary Clinton um, – the debates were hard to watch, and our kids watched. And I don't know if your children watched, but it was it was tough t at times because they were talking about everything but public policy. And there was there was both sides were at fault, but the conversation was devalued and it devolved into chaos during that campaign. And we never really got to talk about education, did we? No, there was no discussion of education. There was no discussion of climate change in the environment. It was all this sort of news of the day, who's right, who's wrong. It was all these one-liners slinging back and forth. And I think that, you know, look, and, and I, I also fault the moderators for some of this because a lot of their questions actually weren't rooted in public policy right. substance. So what I'm hoping is that with this gubernatorial race, we can look at transportation, we can look at education, we can look at economic development, we can look at election reform, we can look at all of these things that actually have an impact on Marylanders' lives and have a discussion about that. Your six-point plan, and I hope it doesn't just stop at six points, but I think that's enough for now. Um, 
you had released a plan a couple of weeks ago, and you highlighted it, and um, you talked about equitable funding to bring excellence to Maryland public schools, setting a goal of debt-free college. Boy, wouldn't that be great? Um, and, uh, you know, I joined partially one of the reasons why in college I joined the National Guard was to help me pay for college. Yes, yes. And, and so that was um, that was a big thing. My parents were middle-class folks from Western Maryland. I was very lucky to go to a private Catholic school in Pittsburgh, and I had a world-class education, but my parents said, we got to figure out a way to pay for this because we can't do it all. I mean, it's a family effort. Oh, yeah, no, look, I worked in – so oof, my mom went to work. Becky and the Barbarian. Becky the Barbarian. Yes. My, my, yes, my mother was nicknamed Becky the Barbarian by my friends. Uh, in part because of her zeal that her kids would get a, a good education. No, my mom went to work uh, when it got about the time that, you know, college was in the foreseeable future. I put myself through college in part working on a beer truck and as a midnight janitor. And I came out of I, – I did come out of school with some debt that took about 10 years to pay off. And when people talk about free college, I mean, look, I would love it if a leprechaun showed, showed up at all of our doors – uh, with a bag of gold. But, you know, there's a difference, in my opinion, between affordable college, debt-free college, and free college. So this is one case where, look, a kid like me coming out of coal country would have certainly benefited from free college. But this is a case, too, where I do think where we have to be responsible, Ryan. Right now, in-state tuition at the, for the state of Maryland is right around $10,000 a year. Yeah. Uh, we spend a about, I could get my numbers wrong, but I think the number is about $6.4 billion a year on, on higher education. In order for us to just say, you know, hip, hip, hooray in, in a tweet-sized piece of public policy, free college for everybody, that $6.4 billion that we pay on higher education would probably end up closer to $26 billion. That's a lot of money. The amount of taxes. So there is no free college. It's not like, you know, the 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 professors at the University of Maryland start working for free. It's not like those campuses groom themselves for free. It's not like the billions of dollars of operating costs go to zero. So what happens what happens then is what free college actually becomes is taxpayer funded uh college. And so my focus my focus in this respect is, as you said, it's about debt-free. So I don't believe we can make college free. I do think we can work to make it, I do think we can work to make it debt-free. And my, my other focus, which is a little bit different than um, some of the other candidates is, and I've said this publicly a couple times, I, where I fi find fault with the Democratic Party, in the last 20, 30 years, the, our rhetoric and our policies have increasingly been, if you go to college, you're a winner. If you don't go to college, you're a loser. And that's, that's been a lot of the policies, including of my previous bosses, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. And I do think that we Democrats need to do a better job meeting the needs of people who can't or choose not to go to college. And so a big focus of mine with that $6.4 billion of higher education budget, post-secondary education budget that comes out of Annapolis, it would be to try to put more capital, reallocate that some of that capital into apprenticeships and to technical education for non-college goers. We have a very strange economy in Maryland where we have lots of knowledge workers. We have lots of, you know, we have the NSA, the NIH, a strong biotech, software industry, Johns Hopkins, the University of Maryland, lots of people going to work with white shirts and red ties or lab coats. But, we, and, but then we have a lot of people working at or around minimum wage, a ton, but we have a thin middle. We have too few people working in the skilled trades. We have too few electricians. We have too few plumbers. We don't have Marylanders who can build the networks into new buildings that we're building. They're being brought in from Virginia and New Jersey. These jobs pay 80, 90, nearly $100,000 a year. They don't require a day of college, but we do not have uh, the kind of apprenticeships program or the technical education programs in Maryland that we need. And when you ask me, like, who should we be focusing on, a lot of who I think we should be focusing on is this very vulnerable segment of our population, people who aren't going to go to college. Um, because a lot, of, a lot of these folks are people who end up hopeless. They end up going on opioids. They end up being the purveyors of crime. 
And so I, a lot of my focus in this education agenda is is rooted on rooted in saying, all right, for people who have an interest in aptitude in the trades or in serious apprenticeships, how can we create a pathway for them? I think you describe a lot of what I grew up with in Western Maryland. Oh, yeah. Your common theme in this campaign is talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. And you, and you say that over and over again, and it sticks because I understand that. And I'll give you a brief anecdote. My parents, when I was about three or four years old, they started a small business. My mom, she went to business school, and my stepdad, he started an HVAC company in 1988. I was born in 85. And they, it was just him. And my mom did the business side. They grew the company. They hired people. Um, but the problem that they've had, and they, they were very successful, and the company's still in existence, and I had the opportunity to work for him um, for a few years, and I learned a lot. I really did. I, I bet it, you did. It, it was, and it was more than some of the best business experience was just hands-on, day in and day out. And growing up as a kid, I can tell you, I, you know, I was the only child, and – I learned a lot about business just hearing my parents interact and talk. We struggled. It was small businesses struggle, but we had to hire people who were outside of the state of Maryland. You know why? Because they didn't have access to trades programs. But the problem is, Alec, that I see, why is there this stigma that and it's not just within politics. It's just, well, you know, Mr. or Mr. Smith, they didn't go to college, but they became an electrician. Well, you know, they're not as successful as the other guy up the street who's an attorney. I I'm sorry. I know people that are doing really well as an electrician, as an HVAC operator. That uh, you know, they're doing these basic plumbers. And, and it's real work, by the way. It's it's and it's hard work, and it's work that you come home every day. Contractors, people that are that are should be proud of themselves every single day, and yet I know kids that have graduated with great college degrees from some of the best universities, and they're still living with mom and dad at 25 years old, and they're shrouded in debt. It hangs around their neck, and they're looking for more work. And you know what their solution is? We're going to go to graduate school. <laughs> I mean, I get it, but that's a real problem in this country, and. It's a problem in Maryland when you go up to Cumberland, Maryland, and you go to Allegheny County, and you go to some of these small communities where kids have no other option, where, yes, they graduate uh, from high school, and then they either go in the military or they go to jail. And, and I'm not saying that that's the only pathway, but that's what happens. Educator incarcerate. And, you know, Alec, it's, it's a real problem. And the opioid thing, that's a real issue. I mean, that is a real problem, but we'll, we'll talk about that in another interview. But um, if you want to talk, if we want to learn more about your education plan, let's go to your website, alecross.com. Learn more about it, read about it. There's a six point plan. And um, there's one other thing I want to bring up to you about education. Have you ever heard of the, the, the theory of the technical middle college where people are earning associate degrees? Yes. I think it's a fantastic program. It's something that I've long talked about, and I wish more school systems in the state of Maryland would embrace this. Um, they kids are earning social or uh, associate degrees by the time that they graduate high school. Imagine how much that sets them apart from the rest. And they're really and they are then positioned not just to be the barista at Starbucks, but they're positioned to do something that can where they can earn eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-five dollars an hour. Um, it's it's remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. Another remarkable thing you did this past week is you released you released a plan about uh, that you proposed innovative changes to Maryland uh, to expand voting. Of course, I mean, how could that go wrong? Republicans in the state of Maryland have called you crazy. I just read an email yeah. today, and they're calling you this guy's nuts. You know, he wants to expand voting to people who are in jail. And you know, you and want independence, God forbid. Independence. So here's where I am in independent world. Um, as a former um, recovering Republican, um, I am independent. I can't vote in the primaries. I couldn't vote for you if I wanted to. Why isn't that Maryland doesn't embrace open primaries? I mean, everybody says, "Oh, how you know if he's not independent, and you know you're going to bust all these different people in from these surrounding states, and they're going to register to vote." That doesn't happen. I mean, I would I would love to vote for the candidate of my choice as an independent, but I can't. I'm limited to voting for the Board of Education in a primary now. 
That's right. So I, di I did come out with a very, very extensive election reform agenda. And the problem I'm trying to solve here, Ryan, is I think a crisis in our democracy, where I think that per participation levels are incredibly low. Um, in Montgomery County, a very wealthy, a very wealthy county, very high levels of education, high information voters. I think that in 2014, I think there was a 38 percent, 38 percent of voters in Montgomery County voted. And so my attitude is, we need to figure out how to make voting easier, and we need to take some of the gatekeeping out of voting. And so I took a, I, I took a very broad perspective about how to do this. And one of the things that I do call for is a commission. I don't say we just go out, go out and look at it, but I want us in Maryland for the very first time to say, all right, isn't it time for us to look at open primaries and potentially rank force voting? So allowing people whose voice uh, isn't relevant in these primaries to become relevant. What I would like is more participation, more voices. And I, I do think that more and more people are thinking of themselves less as Republicans or Democrats mm. as independents. And if, if you actually do something about that, then what you're doing, if you actually register as independent, you're taking away a lot of your power. So I am saying, let's open up the voting process a little bit. Let's let's have a commission to examine things like ranked force voting. Uh, what is ranked force voting? Ranked force voting is where you can put in your top two choices, and if your number one choice does not win, then your then your choice goes to number two. So think about the Republican primary, for example, where Donald Trump won, even because in part because at the beginning he was running against 16 different people. Right. Um, where he was winning elections with 18, 19% of the vote. Right. You know, where 70 plus percent, 80% were voting against him. If somebody falls below a certain threshold, then your vote could go to your second choice. I'm just, huh. I, you know, it's a thought. I say let's study it. I'm not saying let's do it. I'm saying let's evaluate it. Right. Other things that I am calling for, and, and look, this is – one thing that that I've gotten a ton of criticism for, and you know what, I'm willing to just take it. I do think that people who are in jail should be allowed to vote. Uh, there are about 15,000 incarcerated felons in the state of Maryland. And look, I think, I believe that people who are in jail, more often than not, are there for a reason. They should be punished. If they are, if they are given a, um, a life sentence. They should be there for life. They aren't going to get any sympathy from me. But there is this one aspect of the punishment that I don't get, and that's the stripping of citizenship. Um, and the roots of taking away voting rights actually flow from Jim Crow laws uh, and actually fl flow from some of the stuff in the late 19th century. Um, and I actually think that we should restore voting rights. Uh, to people who are in jail, if anything, they would have a keen insight or keen insights about what's not working within the system. I don't think that uh, the voting address necessarily should be the jail because what that then does is it sort of skews the voting population for wherever the jail is, but whatever their previously registered permanent address was, I do think that we should restore their citizenship. Um, and this is something that's gotten a lot of tomatoes thrown at me, but I'm willing to I'm willing to take it. Yeah, you you talked about um, restoring. You know, people are in, incarcerated. But Alec, I think let's break this policy down. You know, is there a if if folks are in jail, um, misdemeanors, felons, whatnot, and they're serving their time, um, is there any crime that someone would commit that would in your in your in, in your policy that would eliminate them from voting at all? I don't think so because I even if it was voter fraud. Well, voter fraud, that's a really <laughs> good one. No, that look, um, look, I think that it's all about the 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 punishment should be appropriate to the offense. And whatever the offense is, like the offense could be you're going to jail and you're going to be imprisoned for the rest of your life. You've done the world's most horrible thing. We are taking away your freedom. We are taking away all these rights. My question is, Stripping the right to vote just doesn't make sense to me as something that necessarily lines up with the offense. If we lived in the state of Virginia, if you were running um, in Virginia, felons can't vote. Right. And 
that's and I think that's wrong. I mean, I think that if you do your time and you do uh, you, there's a punitive action taken against you, and you are released, and you go back to being a reformed citizen. I think that you should be restored in that capacity to make decisions. If you're paying taxes, why shouldn't you be able to vote for the person who is spending your money? Well, look, I agree with that, and I do go a step further, which is I do also think that people in prison should be able to vote absentee. Um, look, from my standpoint, we need more voter participation. Uh, and I think we need voter pr participation from everybody. Um, you know, starting with the starting with the the legal limit uh, in terms of age. I do think that we have a crisis in our democracy right now, where so few people are voting. I think it was something like I, I could get this wrong, but I think something I could get I think it's something like 18 percent of Democrats in the state of Maryland chose our nominee in 2014. Um, when you when you look at the percentage of voters who are Democrats and then you look at the percentage who participated, I think we need to do I think we need to make it easier to vote. Another thing that I focus on is college students. Mm. So in Maryland right now, we make it very, very difficult, even if you spend nine, ten months a year in Maryland as a student, even if you spend twelve months a year in Maryland uh, as a student plus your summer job here, we make it very difficult for you to vote. Uh, and so what I would, part of what I would like to do is reduce some of the barriers to students who come from out of state but who effectively live in Maryland mm -hmm. and make it easier for them to vote. Uh, one of the things that is remarkable to me is the degree to which young people don't vote. Mm. They don't vote. It's bananas. Um, you know, I remember when I had my, a pollster uh, make a presentation to me sort of pitching me on being their pollster for my campaign for governor. And they showed me this ca this category called 18 to 49, 18 to 49 year olds. And then it was like 50 to 55, 56 to 60, 61 to 65. And I was like, wait a second, what does the 18 year old have to do with the 49 year old? And then they showed me the vote counts. Mm -hmm. And it's remarkable. Young people just don't vote. And so I do think. Is it apathy? I think it is a couple things. I think it is. I think it is first of all they have not yet gotten into the habit of voting and 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 voting is a habit. Number 2 is I do think that there is a lack of identification with the existing political parties. Mm -hmm. I think it oftentimes is uh I think that there are barriers to their voting. Like if you are a student at the University of Maryland and you're not allowed to vote in Maryland even though you're going to spend 11 out of the 12 months here, you have to vote back where your parents live in, you know, New Jersey or whatever. Right. That's a barrier. And I also think that we need to do a better job of civic education. I think that civic education, having left our junior highs and high schools in recent years, we're now seeing the consequence of that in terms of what I consider to be the lack of civic engagement by people in their 20s, where they'll put something on Snapchat or they'll tweet something or maybe they'll even go to a march, but they don't participate in the foundations of our democracy, which is voting. And so I think we really need to get people to vote. Yes, we do need to get people to vote um, as long as it's not the Russians. That's so. right. No, please. Goodness gracious. Um, the Holy Grail, and that's been described, is this idea. Um, you know, it's like the Jetsons. You know, how do we vote? how do we do this transform vote and voting altogether? And there's the concept of online voting. You're a tech guy. You're an expert in technology. How do we secure it? How do we make sure that it's legitimate, that it's not hacked? Because if I could – Alec, if I could vote online, I would. I mean wouldn't that make it easier? Oh, okay. I know who I want to vote for. I've researched all the candidates. This is the person who most aligns with my policy. You go onto a secure website, and I mean you're done in five minutes. It saves you a trip. Imagine my grandparents who – they're 92, 85. If we could bring a computer inside of their home and we say, all right, me, mom, pap. Uh, you don't have to get up. It's November. It's cold out, and you want to stay here. Uh, you know, you want to go back and watch old episodes of Hee Haw, and you can keep doing that. Um, but uh, we're just going to vote here real quick. It's going to take five minutes. But Alec, as a, as a tech entrepreneur, somebody who understands security, um, cybersecurity, how do we secure that? How does it work? So it, we aren't there yet. Right. There's a country, Estonia, that is doing it now, uh, Estonia, the little country that could. 
Uh, and they have taken a very sophisticated approach to enabling uh, voting online, but they're able to do it in part because they have national identity cards. Um, all of their electronic medical records are online. All of their banking is online. They pay their taxes in real time online. So it is a country that has basically moved its entire life online. Uh, and they vote online, and they're able to do so using very powerful cryptographic technologies. But here's the thing. It's all rooted in verifiable identity mm -hmm. because everybody has a national identity card. So the only way that this can work in the United States in a way that is secure, verifiable, uh, and in which can be authenticated and trusted is has to be rooted in real identity. Um, and making sure that ad identity cannot be masked uh, in any way. And right now, the way that we sort of do identity in the United States is it devolves from the federal government to the 50 individual states. So some people have passports, um, but there isn't a mandatory national identity program. So I think in order for us to get to online voting nationally, it would have to have some kind of a national identity. It would have to have something like a nas uh, national identity um, uh, form uh, card that is then backed up by very powerful cryptography. Um, so in the same way in which we trust a transaction, we all go to you know, go to Amazon right now, and we trust that our we aren't going to lose our credit card. You know, we have to trust that we aren't going to lose our vote. Right. Right. Uh, so I think that we are. I think we are a little while off from being able to do this right now in the United States in a way where identity cannot be manipulated. So if I were the Russians, uh, what I would do is I would get my hands on the voter file. Let's say we went to online voting tomorrow. If we went to online voting tomorrow, if I were the Russians, what I would do is I would get the voter file. What the voter file shows you is who's voted. But what it therefore would also demonstrate is who hasn't voted. So if I'm the Russians, what I would try to do is I would try to uh, identify however many traditional non-voters, who therefore would be likely non-voters in the future, pretend to be them, and then cast votes yeah. on, in their name because they probably wouldn't get found out because these people weren't going to vote anyway. Right. So right now, there are too many ways to manipulate it to be able to go to online voting. I do think, though, more broadly within our system, we need to double down on securing the vote plan. Maryland was one of 21 states uh, that was cyber attacked uh, by yeah. the Russians. Our voting systems were cyber attacked. Uh, the Trump administration, in the face of the vulnerabilities that we have, are, is doing nothing uh, from a voter from a voting protection standpoint. Yeah, except um, they 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 put out this um, phony commission that um, they want people to give their last four digits of their social security numbers. And you know, Andy Harris is down on the Eastern Shore. Um, basically saying that if they don't participate, <laughs> yeah, they're going to withdraw funding from, from states. I mean, the whole voting fraud commission thing that Trump is doing is just complete nonsense. No, it is nonsense. And this is a case, too. Uh, this is another example of where I say demo our democracy is in crisis. Our democracy is in crisis in part because we have too few people voting. Our democracy is also in crisis because our voting systems themselves are so insecure. Yeah. I am confused about one thing, and this makes me sound a little bit like a conspiracy theorist, but I can't, <laughs> get, I can't get it out of my head. Do you know what an undercount is, Ryan? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that term quite a bit. So it's, you know, basically, it's oftentimes the count that people will vote for a president or a go governor, and then maybe the, the number of things that they vote for beneath that will be less. You know, oh, they've never heard of the county clerk, so they're just mm -hmm. not going to vote for that. In Michigan and Wisconsin, there were huge undercounts where people voted for all of the things down ballot but didn't vote for a president. And I understand that part of that can be explained as an antipathy for Trump or Clinton, people saying, oh, I don't like Donald Trump, I don't like Hillary Clinton, I'm not going to vote for either of them. But the volume of it was such, and it was such an outlier relative to the other 48 states, and we know what role Michigan and Wisconsin played in this election. Sure. Look, I don't have hard evidence of, of – malignant behavior, but it does have me questioning things. And what it does draw me to the conclusion to is that we've got to make sure that we do uh, have secure systems. 
Fortunately, in Maryland, um, we made some of the correctives that other states have been slower to do. So Maryland's systems are more secure than most others, I'm pleased to share. And so to wrap up um, this interview, Alec, um, we can't talk about voting reform without talking about gerrymandering yes. and congressional districts. And you are here in the great 6th Congressional District, born, raised, have lived here, raised in the family here. Um, but really, we're in Rockville, Maryland, there's not a whole lot that Rockville, Maryland has in common with Accident, Maryland, or where I grew up in Hagerstown. I mean, really, the, the congressional lines were redrawn so badly. And look at the third congressional district, John Sarbanes district. I mean, I, I, if I looked at a map, I couldn't even tell you where that thing goes. Um, I think you in Baltimore City, I don't know if you're in the seventh or in the third. Um, I'm in Sarbanes' district. Okay, so you're in the third. So yep. see, I, I couldn't even tell you. But – as governor, would you support um, gerrymandering reform, basically saying, let's redraw these congressional districts the right way? Yeah. So on Monday when we issued our election reform agenda, and this is yet one more thing that I got some grief from grief for, but I, I got grief for it because it's the right thing to do, yeah. is yes, I'm in favor of an independent commission yeah. for redistricting. Uh, you know, if you look at – Why did you get grief for that? Because they say, oh, well, we have to do this nationally or regionally or it will hurt Democrats. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is sort of unilateral disarmament. And, and here's my attitude. My attitude is that we have to lead. We can't just say other people are screwing around. Therefore, that justifies our screwing around. Um, that's, that's not real leadership. That's, that's not anything to be proud of. So what I think is that we need an independent commission that can draw up congressional districts with integrity and the right thing to do. When I worked in the Obama administration, I had extensive interactions with Congress. And I had largely positive interactions with Congress, including folks in my Senate Oversight Committee, you know, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, and others. Uh, but what I see, and increasingly I see it in the House, is because of gerrymandering, you get absolute lunatics. <laughs> you get people who are so far to the right um, as to be unrecognizable to what is acceptable. And then you get people who are so far to the left that they will never they, – they, they view even having a conversation with a Republican as being you know, an act of disloyalty. Hmm. And so Jerry, this is a direct byproduct of gerrymandering. We've created these districts where all that matters is the primary – and where whoever becomes more extreme, whoever, re whoever reflects the views of the party at its ideologically most extreme, that is the person that wins. What do you get when you do that? You get the 435 members of the United States House of Representatives. Yeah, you get bad public policy. You get terrible public policy. You get, you get people who, who are throwing spears at each other who will not do good old-fashioned bipartisan – lawmaking rooted in the interests and values of citizens that are broadly held. Instead, it's white hat, black hat. It's you're a good guy, you're a bad guy, depending on your party affiliation. And God help you if you, if you move two inches away from doctrine, you yeah. know, your party doctrine. Well, I see you as a guy that if you're elected governor, and I, I think that you would be able to work across the aisle with our, our many Republican uh, State senators and delegates. Now you're going to hold the line on your principles and and your policies, and you're going to work your butt off to make sure that they get through the Democrat you know, this legislature. And look, Maryland's not going to change its Democratic legislature anytime soon. It's just not going to happen. I mean, we live in Montgomery County. It's a very progressive territory. You know, they're they're not going to elect any Republicans down here for for a while until Republicans smarten up and decide when they want to be effective legislators. And they can't just go to the hard right, whereas there's many Democrats that can't just go to the hard left. There has to be that there has to be that middle. And I I am deadly convinced in politics, where I am personally, that there is that middle. There is the middle ground. And that's why I think independents should be able to vote for who they want to. And you know, there are examples of this in Maryland of people who are identify you know, clearly identified with an ideological point of view. But who got? But who have demonstrated an ability to work with people across the aisle? Chris Van Hollen, Barbara Mikulski are two really good examples. I mean, Van Hollen, Van Hollen is a partisan Democrat, mm -hmm. 
but he he shows how a partisan Democrat can work in a bipartisan way. Barbara Mikulski, she's a firebrand. I mean, yeah. goodness, she's a firebrand. But she knew how, she knew how to do deals. Mm. She knew how to cut deals. That's a dirty word these days. And so that's my point. That's exactly my point. Barbara Mikulski was a deal maker. Um, she cut. She made a deal during Bush administration uh, to fund women's health at yep. the NIH. She just a good old fashioned deal. She loved it. She pumps her fist about it. Now, if you do a deal, you're seen at what Barbara Mikulski did with Bush. Uh, to get women's health funded at the NIH would now probably be viewed as some sort of a betrayal because I'm sure there was some give in her take. And so I do think that we need, you know, we've seen it from Republicans too, you know, Senator Mathias, you know, mm. who served in, in Maryland years ago. Long-time Republican senator. Long-time yeah. Republican senator. So I do think that, you know, the Mikulskis and the Van Hollens and others who do have very clear principles but also know how to actually actually know how a bill becomes a law. Mm -hmm. um, Without watching Schoolhouse Rock. Right. <laughs> Knowing how to work with people in a positive, productive way that is still rooted in values, that's the way to govern. That's the way that I would hope to govern as, govern as your governor. Well, I, I appreciate your time. You're working hard. You're here on a Sunday afternoon when you could be home watching football with your family. Um, it's no secret that you're out working hard. Alec, and I think that people are recognizing that, and the time that you spend with me, and the other time that you spent with me, and I'm sure there'll be more times, but um, keep doing that, and I think you're selling a message that is fundamentally different from everybody else. You're putting out um, interesting policies, and you're, you know, while you're taking on the chin on some of this, um, you're doing it the right way, and that's you're explaining it, and you're, you're able to sell it, and if you can market it, and you can sell it, man, that's a combination for a winning campaign, and if uh, you keep doing what you're doing, I think you're going to do well. Don't – and look, we talked about this, um, and I'll just, I'll just say this is my final point. Uh, looking at the polls now, you know, they have you as – I hate using this phrase, but as a peripheral candidate. That's going to change. It, it sure is. And it's so eight months before the primary, I wouldn't change my lane for anybody else's right now. I mean, and you have – a steady lane, and you're creeping up, and I think that the more that you do this, the more that you are out and you're meeting people, the more successful that you're going to become, and people are going to say, wow, there's the light bulb. How come I haven't discovered Alec Ross beforehand? Um, and um, you're going to surprise a lot of people. I, I, I mean so that. too. So thanks for doing this. You're a stand-up guy, and uh, we'll come back and, and do this once again. To be continued. Thank All you, All right. Thank you. All right. That was my interview with Maryland gubernatorial candidate Alec Ross. I think it went well. We had an opportunity to talk about education. We talked about his election reform plan. What distinguishes Alex from the field is his ability to be wonky. And that's important. I I look at candidates and I say, who is the wonkiest, most policy-detailed candidate of them all? Any candidate can walk out and talk in platitudes. You can go out and rally the troops, and that's fine. But there's people like me in politics that follow this, that report on it, and I'm a cerebral voter. I vote not necessarily with my heart, but I apply logic to my decisions. And in politics, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense these days. But Alec Ross, I think, will be very – he's going to do well in this. And uh, we look forward to having the other candidates come on and, and talk about their plans. They're welcome anytime on a minor detail. My name is Ryan Miner. We're here every Sunday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Thank you for listening, everybody. Enjoy this warm weather and have a great week.